Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys. This is Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. How's it going out there? I'm in Los Angeles. I hope you're doing all right wherever you are. Thanks for tuning in. Let's do some craft work. Today on the podcast, my guest is Courtney Maum. I'm very excited to have her here on the show. She is the author of five books, including a book called Before and After the Book Deal. It was named by Vanity Fair magazine as one of the 10 best books for writers. Most recently, Courtney Maum published a memoir. It's called The Year of the Horses, and it drops this week in trade paperback. It's going to happen on Valentine's Day, so you can get the Year of the Horses for your Valentine. What do you think about that? Courtney Mom is a very industrious human being. She is an excellent literary citizen. She is a writing coach, an educator. She is the executive director of a nonprofit learning collaborative called The Cabins. She writes a, a widely read and beloved newsletter that you can sign up for at her website, CourtneyMom.com. And at CourtneyMom.com, there is a full slate of online masterclasses that you can take from her. You can learn all about the business of publishing, writing-related stuff. It's all there at CourtneyMom.com, including a class on writing book proposals. So that is what I'm going to be talking with Courtney Mom about today, how to write a good book proposal. And if you like what you hear, but you want to dive deeper, just go to CourtneyMom.com and click on the Classes and Events tab. You'll see it. And you can explore all that she has to offer. It is a trove of insight and information and learning related to writing and the business of publishing. She's an excellent resource. So again, in today's episode, we are going to be focusing on how to write a good book proposal. And we're also going to be talking about what a book proposal is. So this conversation and this episode 
is suitable for people at every level. You don't need to be an expert writer to get something from this. And if you happen to be working on a work of nonfiction, be it a memoir or something else, this could be the perfect episode for you. So as you're going to hear, Courtney Mom has learned a lot over the course of her career. She has published five books. She has published on big presses. She has published on indie presses. She has written across multiple genres. She has taught this stuff for years with great success. And she is going to walk us through the process. What needs to be in a nonfiction book proposal and why? And we're also going to talk about related issues. Things like having a platform, which you've probably heard people say before, and how to arrange your writing and your reading lives towards full literary citizenship, how to be a better literary citizen, which is, you will hear Courtney argue, a significant part of the equation. So it's a great conversation, and I'm so pleased to get to share it with you now. Here she is, folks. This is my talk with Courtney Mom about how to write a book proposal. So broadest strokes, I would argue that a book proposal is a proposition for a book that you know you can write and you think you can sell. <laughs> and it's usually for, it works best for nonfiction. One of the reasons it works really well for nonfiction is because a lot of nonfiction books and then book proposals necessitate quite a bit of research. Now, if you're flying around the world or the country interviewing people for a project that you don't have a book advance for, and you're just going off of good faith that one day you'll get a book advance for that book, then you're doing all that research on your own dime. So for people who have a, you know, you have to have a very strong sense of what you're doing and why, it is a nice way to get some payment up front to cover your research, interview, preliminary costs, you know, to getting, to getting the book written. In terms of whether or not you need a book proposal, you know, we were just chatting about novels. So generally, novels don't get sold on a proposal. If you've already had a novel come out and it was quite successful, you can sell it on what's called a partial, which would be a couple chapters, actual written chapters, and then a little outline of what the rest of the book will be. If you're calling Hoover, you can just send an email with a one sentence line of, you know, what the heck you're for real, right? You just need to email your editor what you're doing next. Writing proposals for a novel mostly are useful for the writer themselves to get a sense of what they're trying to do and why and who it's going to speak to. But you're having your hopes up a little high if you think you're going to sell a, a first novel on a proposal. So for nonfiction, I think we'll mostly be talking about people in the nonfiction world, you know, which includes memoir, autobiography, autobiographical novels, and memoir and essays. You want to have a chance in hell or some sense that your project is marketable, that it can sell. To my mind, in order to do that, you need to be able to answer two questions. Why would someone buy this book? And, and in fact, why would someone spend upwards of $27 on it, which is not a small amount of money? And what's in it for them? Now, I, I coach writers, and so a lot of times I'll hear answers to this question that are along the lines of, you know, 
it's beautifully written. I'm a beautiful writer and the writing is just really, <laughs> it's really beautiful. Um, or I have lived such a crazy life and I've, I just, people are going to love my story. That's not, that's not book proposal ready answer. You really, something, people who purchase nonfiction books, I'd argue there's oh God, four or five reasons they do it. One is for rubbernecking, right? They, they're turning their neck around to look at some disaster. One or a second reason would be to learn something. A third category for the purchasers of nonfiction, they want to be inspired. Other people want to relate to the material. You have been through something that they are going through. You see this a lot with recovery memoirs. People really like to be accompanied on their journey. And then laughter, entertainment. They want to have a great time. You know, Samantha Irby, for example, her, her essay collections are so excellent. And you could argue they fall in the entertainment section, right? So in order to help yourself answer these questions because they're not easy when you're working really hard day after day year after year on a memoir you won't be able to see the forest for the trees so you really will fool yourself into thinking that people are going to write this just because it's a beautiful story beautifully told and truly that is just not going to cut it so I like to break it down into three questions that you need to address for the whole of your project and they should show up in the overview Number one, what does your book have to say that's new or is a new take on something that's already been said? Number two, who is your book going to say it to and in what tone of voice? People forget about the tone of voice bit. So the way that Mary Carr writes a memoir is not the way that Samantha Irby writes a book of essays, even though they are both using humor right? The tonality and the register and your target audience need to be addressed in your head, your heart, and then in the proposal. And then the third consideration, why are you the only person who can write this book? That is, especially in these times where everyone's, you know, pushed to have a platform, that is going to be one of the most important driving questions and also <laughs> one of the reasons the door slams on you a lot. You know, if you, I don't know, just got into life coaching, for example, and you have three clients, probably you're not going to get a book deal based on everything you've learned about life coaching because you're at the beginning of the adventure, right? Well, then, I, then I'm fucked, I guess, because <laughs> that was exactly what I... Yeah. So the more, you know, there's a rhetorical term exigence, which covers this, like your reason you know the, the the reason you're the only person who can write this needs to be very clear so if we look at prince harry right <laughs> there's a reason that only he could write the book you know he i'm putting this in he wrote in uh, quotation marks whether or not we like the product there's exigence there that prince harry is the person who needed to write spare well did he need to write it i don't know that's a question for another podcast but there you go these are these are questions to ask yourself to understand whether your proposal will simply be an organizational tool to help you organize your material and your thoughts and your path forward 
or whether you'll actually have a chance of getting a, a book advance off of it. Okay. So just to kind of like dial back a little bit and make sure that people listening understand a book proposal as uh, we're going to define it here is typically for nonfiction. Occasionally, if you're selling like what you call the partial for fiction, but for the purposes of this discussion, it's mostly for nonfiction. It is a sam- that you like what what's in a book proposal? You've got like the sample chapter and then like the summary and then a marketing plan, right? Like that's what's in it. Again, are there hard and fast rules? Uh, not exactly, but there there is a standard approach to writing proposals and it's it's one that I teach and I think there's six components that you have to have. You must have. One is a table of contents. The readability and navigability, is that a word? (laughs) The ability to navigate your proposal fluidly is super important. People always forget to imagine the person receiving this, right? You have to imagine people that are just like us, totally overwhelmed. You know, inbox has 1,400 new messages. The laundry was forgotten. It's wet and molding, right? For God's sake, include a table of contents so they, they understand how they're getting from point A to B. And if the wind blows and your papers are moved all over the place, oh, and please insert page numbers, um, they, they know where they are, right? So table of contents you have to have. You must have an overview. This is the most selling, the most important selling tool. In addition to your bio and your platform, table of contents overview, chapter summaries, we need an idea of how the book is flowing. Sample chapter or sample chapters. You definitely need one. You could go up to three. I mean, I, to me, that seems like a lot. I think one or two is appropriate. But let, let me let me stop you because, like, sometimes chapters can be really short. Like, what's a pa- what's like a word count or a page count typically ballpark for a sample for a book proposal? Well, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, it can vary a lot, but. I, I don't think you'd want anything under 1,200 words in a chapter, and above 3,000 or 3,500 might be a bit much. Again, this is not your finished book, right? It's just a glimpse. It's like a flash. It's like a flash of what you're capable of. So even if you think the chapters are going to be denser and more nuanced or whatever it is, re- remember that th- this is kind of a time crunch. You're meeting the, the reader is scanning to see the potential of your manuscripts for sales, right? So yeah, I would aim between 1,200 and 3,000 words personally. Okay. If it's academic, you know, it's it's going to go a bit more. But yeah, I think the, the shorter side, I, I, I like to err on the side of concision personally in this kind of scenario. So, okay. So just so people are following along, we've got the overview, the table of contents, a sample chapter chapter or two. And then is there anything else like main component? You would need a comparative title analysis. I'll call them comp titles from here on out. You're going, what you're doing there is comparing your book to books that are in a similar category that have performed well in the market. So they don't all need to be bestsellers, and they shouldn't be, because if you're untested in the marketplace, then you shouldn't be comparing yourself to only bestsellers. So it should be a range of, of um, you know, books that were critically acclaimed, became kind of cult, cult books, or 
you know, were bestsellers, but they, they did well. And you'll want somewhere between five and eight, I would say. And then your bio and your marketing plan. The marketing plan is a horrific, <laughs> nonsensical document that sees you becoming the PR agency marketing sales and event strategy management company for your book that doesn't exist yet for your author brand that also doesn't exist yet. So that's a delight to write. And then bonus sections. So those are six components. Bonus sections, again, this depends what you're writing. If you are doing some kind of self-help book, business leadership guide, it would be appropriate to include testimonials, you know, that prove you're, you're, if you're a, a fitness coach or something, you'd like testimonials that prove that whatever method you're teaching people it works. It has benefited benefited others. You might need graphs. You might need statistics. It might be appropriate to include images, you know, especially if you're doing some sort of autobiography, the whole story of your life and you have some wildlife, it might be, it might be appropriate to include images. So that's, these are the major components that, that you need. And then I have a couple like, <laughs> tips and tricks that we'll, we'll get to later, but that's, this is what you need. Okay. And then something else you said, uh, like one of these questions that you have to ask yourself, if you know that you have a saleable project, that's like ready to be proposed. You said, <laughs> what does your book have to say that's new or is a new take on something already said? I think like my first response to that is like, I mean, everything's already been said. Yes. I, you know, I feel like I'm looking at this through the prism of my own work. I'm like, a lot of these <laughs> well, questions are hard to that. answer. They're, they're hard <laughs> to answer that. though. They so are one piece of advice for people who are trying to look inward to figure out how to do this is look elsewhere. Don't look inward at first because you'll explode. You'll have an existential breakdown. I'm not even <laughs> joking. I'm not joking. Yeah. You must look elsewhere outward to how other people are doing it. So like Brad, let's start with a very common topic, grief. Grief is universal. We are all going to lose people, animals, money. We're all going to lose something in life. We cannot protect against that. But grief is hyper-personal. The way that we grieve and the lost thing or person that we're grieving is hyper-hyper-personal to us. So let's take a book that's done well. H is for Hawk. Okay. Uh, oh, God, how embarrassing. I'm forgetting the author. Helen McDonald. Helen McDonald. H is for Hawk. Doesn't matter if you haven't read this book. This is a book about grief. Okay. There's two timelines. We'll separate them into the universal timeline and the hyperpersonal timeline. The universal timeline. Helen has lost her father. She loved her father. They had a very close relationship. She was hoping would develop and become closer. That's no longer possible. He's not alive. This is universal. Everyone at some point, you know loses a, a dad regardless of the relationship they had with them or didn't okay so what's the hyperpersonal? what's the new thing that helen's doing that would have earned her a book deal uh, based on a proposal helen's coping strategy is to learn falconry which was something that her father introduced her to so she's going to navigate the grieving experience and also analyze the grieving process while also charting her journey to tame a falcon. This is highly 
unique to her. This is a lived experience that not many people have experienced or can relate to. But because there's another timeline within the manuscript that is so universal, that universality overrides the hyperpersonal element, if that makes sense. So a really good exercise for people readying themselves for proposal writing is to spend a couple days doing what I think of as a comp audit, like a marketing thing. Look at the titles that you're comparing your own work to and break it down into what's super universal that basically everyone can relate to. And then what's the hyper hyper personal element within the narrative. And that's the thing that gives it that. Why could only this writer write it? And what, what is the newness on the thing that has already been said? Okay. So the next thing you mentioned when a person is considering whether a project is saleable and ready is who is your book going to say it to and in what tone of voice? Let's break that in, in two. First of all, who is your book going to say it to? How does a reader or how does a writer evaluate prospective audience? You know, like how do we get, how do we, how do we answer that question? So that question is easier to answer if you already have something of an audience right? If you have a podcast, if you have a blog, if you have a newsletter, and you can already track the demographics, age range, whatever it is of the people who like your material, then you already have, or perhaps you're a stand-up comic, something, you, you, something's going on in your life where you go out in the world and are already delivering content and can already see who is consuming that content. In that sense, you'll already have a breakdown of the type of people that like to consume your content. And I, I, I just want to say for the record, I, I don't love calling all of this content. You know, this is our art. This is our hearts. This is our souls. These are our dreams. None of that matters <laughs> to the people reading the proposal. So you do have to get, you got to put on your big, 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 big adult pants <laughs> and thicken up your skin when you go into proposal lands. Because this, this is about numbers. Right. So if you don't have all that and you're you're truly kind of untested, you're a real newbie out there. You don't have a newsletter. You don't have, you know, a big social media following count. Maybe you're not even online. Then you're going to be fumbling in the dark a little bit as to who your audience is. So what you need to do is is this exercise of really imagining someone. And if it helps you to imagine someone your colleague Brad, who never reads, or your Aunt Cindy, who only reads books with non, no violence in them, you know, whatever the hell it is, imagine a reader in a bookshop, and they end up in the section of the bookshop where your book is. When they pick it up, and it helps to imagine someone with not a lot of disposable income, why, why do they decide to bring it to the register? What's happening in that moment? that makes them bring it to the register. So for example, I just, I released my first memoir, fifth book, but first memoir somewhat recently. And I was thinking a lot about this because that book, it's called The Year of the Horses. And it explores how equine therapy, how working with horses and being with horses helps me combat a serious depression in my life and a total inability to sleep. So something I thought a lot about when I was working on, you know, the way that that book was going to be written up, how I was going to communicate it, I thought a lot, well, God, I don't want my audience to only be 
uh, horse women, horsemen, people who have knowledge of horses. I actually, the real audience I want to reach is women, you know, of um, a certain age, especially women who have are caretaking for children or, you know, have given birth and have erased themselves in the act of caretaking. How do I reach them? And then I realized oh, I have to elevate the message of reclaiming joy and making space for our own joy, you know, on and on and on. But I, I went through a visualization activity of who would be buying my book and at what point in their life would they need it? So you want to think about that. And of course, your comp titles are going to help you. Oh, I want, I want readers who love, I'm glad my mother's dead to read my book or the flip side, you're doing something super, super literary, you know, oh, anyone who loved the Argonauts, those are my people. Those are my readers. So really looking through your comp titles and not just like, what's the content, who's the author, but who published those books? You know, if you decide that your book is a $2 radio book, for example, well, your readers are and, not going to be And $2 radio is a great independent press based in Ohio. Yes. And they're awesome. And, but generally, you know, is their readership going to overlap with Atria's, which is a big, big press that does quite commercial books? Maybe, but, you know, not, uh, there's not a clear path to that overlap. So thinking about what press you want to be with and all the different gradations of presses that are available can also help you understand who, do you, who your audience is. The more experimental your writing is, the more experimental the structure of the book is, the smaller <laughs> generally the press is going to become, the less money that's on the table, but, <laughs> you know. <laughs> some of those books, some of those books are great. We need those books, right? We absolutely, and you know what? If you need to write that book, let me tell you what the worst thing you can do is not writing it and, and designing a proposal for a book that blows that out into a big um, commercial version of what uh, at heart is a very artistically driven project. Write it your way, sell it your way, and, and then you can uh, design a series of speaking engagements around it that will earn you more money. There, there's ways... You know, if you go the indie route and you're not going to get a lot of money, there are ways to monetize on the content in, in, in books that um, didn't get you a big payout at, at the at get-go. Okay. So I need to interject. I don't want to make this episode <laughs> about me, but I feel like I have a relevant question Go here. ahead. <laughs> yeah. I feel like in evaluating my own project, I keep telling myself, I'm like, I, you know, I, one day I'm going to write a book with like real commercial chops, but like I just have and kind of artsy bent, you know, like these books that I have been writing so far kind of fall into that category. And so even though this book is nonfiction and a memoir as presently constituted, my thinking currently is like, I'm just going to write the whole thing. I'm not yeah. going to try to sell it on a proposal. That's okay too, right? Because it's like, I just don't feel like I'm going to be able to put a sample chapter together and do some big marketing plan and no one's going to buy it. They have to read the whole thing and they have to fall in love with it the way that I do. It's one of those books. And you also are the kind of creator who probably needs to write it first. I do not like writing under contract. I find it, uh, you know, it's a huge privilege if you get a book advance, of course, but I'm the kind of writer where my first draft 
has absolutely no DNA with the finished version. I have to go through many, many drafts, and they're not revisions. They're entirely new drafts with entirely new speakers. I do auditions for people. You know, it, I try out novels, especially novels, not so much nonfiction because, you know, it's supposed to be me. It's an excruciating process. And the one time with my fiction where I sold a book on a partial was an excruciating experience. Again, it was a very fortunate experience because they paid me quite a, you know, a livable wage up front. But artistically, it, it almost undid me. So there's a terrible tendency or trend right now where writers of nonfiction are expected to write both, to have both the finished book and the proposal available. I hate this. And I think as creators, we all need to be fighting back against this. You know, th that's just such a tremendous amount of work to ask someone who hasn't been paid anything for their book yet to do. Right. But again, if it's a very personal memoir, if you have the time in your life to sit down and write it, um, it can be a very good idea to write the whole book. Uh, this, that approach becomes more complicated, as I set, said at the outset. If you need a lot of money up front to travel, to, to um, research, or you have to take off work for however long to get the writing done, you know, and you really need that money up front, well, then a proposal starts, starts to make sense. But some people really do need to write the book um, to understand what the correct shape of it will be. And also, if you've never written a book, <laughs> um, getting your first book deal off of a proposal is uh, risky business. You know, how do you know? You, of course, you think you know how to write a book, right? But when push comes to shove, do you? A lot of people don't. I mean, we, there's certainly a lot of stories of people, especially the influencers, people with tons and tons of social media following. They just assume, oh, well, they're really good at content. Look at look at all their millions of followers. Certainly, they can write a book, but it's content create content creation for social media is a different animal than creating content for a, a book. Uh, you know, listen, I, I will go to the mat saying that writing books is uniquely difficult compared to other forms of content creation. It's so hard. And the end game is even harder. Like I, I always tell writers who are about to go on tour for their first book, like just be prepared for how hard it is to sell one, one hardcover. Forget making it onto a list, just selling one freaking hardcover. You know, you go to these book events and they might even have your friends at it. But guess what? If you're friends with writers, they already have your book in galley form and they're not going to buy it again. <laughs> Listen, you know, it takes a very special friend, right? You are sure <laughs> there are people there are people who will show up to your reading who, you know, who will not buy your book, even if my they mother, don't have the galley. Yeah, you're like my mother doesn't buy my books. She's like, well, you'll send them to me. Right. My mother doesn't buy my books. Right. She did not buy my memoir in which she's, uh, you know, the star of the book. But but you and then but then you have people who come up to you and you say, I loved your presentation. God, this sounds so good. I'm not going to buy it for whatever reason, you know, and that comes, by the way, after the years and the years and the years of writing at the proposal, the age, you know, all this stuff. So the journey is going to put some hair on your chest. Yeah. So just to keep people oriented, we're talking, I'm kind of reviewing some of these big points that you made. How do I know if my project is ready and saleable? And we just talked about who is your book going to say it to? And the second half of that question is, 
And I think this is important because it's not something that maybe gets talked about enough is, and in what tone of voice? Yeah. So let's drill down into that a little bit more. Like we, you actually have to think about like your tone and like, uh, like, I guess, is it like, are you going to be funny? Are you going to be serious? Are you going to be dry? Like, wh- is that what you mean? Sure. So like, here's, here's a way of thinking about it. Okay. If you, let's just go with house, right? It could be an apartment, but for fun, let's say you have a house and you have no time and you have disposable income. So you decide to hire an interior decorator. You're going to give them a vibe. Maybe they'll help you find the vibe, right? Maybe they'll be like rustic chic, 1980s Ralph Lauren, a Lily Pulitzer, Connecticut, right? They'll throw out all different kinds of energies and you're going to land on one. And then the decorator is going to start populating each room with signs and signifiers that support this aesthetic theme that you've chosen, right? It's, it's the same thing when you're going about writing a book. You want to choose the paint colors ahead of time, the decorations, the, the, the energy, the vibe, the aesthetic should be intentional and you should have some idea from the get-go about it, right? So a book like that I referenced before, I'm glad my mother is dead or I'm glad my mom is dead. I'm sure that that book, I don't know for a fact that it was written on a proposal. I I kind of think that it probably was, but I don't know that for a fact, but let's pretend it was. I would imagine that that the tone, the sardonic black humor approach, which is essential to the subject matter was highlighted in the book proposal because the book without that tone probably collapses, right? You can't be like serious about that. I mean, there's got to be some tongue in cheek. Well, you can, but then it becomes a different. I mean, I think that this is a. I'm actually surprised that I used that as an example because I'm against this trend right now of I had to have my arm amputated. What a bummer. Right. Or like (laughs) my mom's a freaking bitch who starved me. (laughs) I'm glad she's dead. Ha ha. Like, I think that this ha 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 laugh it off approach that's starting to become quite trendy in memoir is deeply troubling there are times when it works right again samantha irby does that quite well in fact she might be one of the engines driving this trend but you know her her stuff is is she talks about ibs she talks about body images but she's not going to a place where Roxane Gay has gone, for example, where you go from humor to rape, right? So I don't love this trend of using this superficial level of humor to approach all difficult things. You know, there is room for difficult writing about difficult topics. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Not everything's a joke, right? Well, it starts starts to feel like it in America, but you know, (laughs) I don't know. Maybe everything is a joke and the joke's on us. (laughs) So the next thing, uh, you know, the next big point you made about assessing a project's readiness and saleability is why are you the only person who can write this book? And I feel like you kind of touched on this when we were talking about Helen McDonald. Mm -hmm. It's just so specific to her life story with this falconry and her particular way of coping with her grief. But there are other things I think that might be able to distinguish you as the only person who could possibly tell your story, right? 
could be something oh, gosh, else. Absolutely. I mean, if something wild happened to you, I forget the name of the book, but the, the young woman who did have her arm, the surfer who had her arm bit off by a shark. <laughs> oh, right. Right. Well, she's probably the right person to write that, but either her or the shark. I think she's back in the news, I want to say. Oh, really? <laughs> she just she just like came out against like transgender surfers. She actually like stepped in it. She came out against oh, like transgender surfers. Nothing's safe anymore. You I can't was gonna even say, like <laughs> No, you can't oh even cheer God. for her. <laughs> you can't even use anything as an example. I know, I know. This it's is like, why you can only do self promotion. I um, mean but I mean it's like it's kinda sad that like I mean I my cursory glance at social media and I picked this up. Yeah. Somehow. I mean generally generally you need to either prove you have some expertise. So like Barack Obama has quite a bit of expertise at being president, right? And a great speaker and someone I miss as president. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, he's got expertise and, and thus he is allowed to write um, from the point of view of, of being an expert. Now, you could argue that Dr. Oz is an expert. Right. Just because we are recognized as having expertise doesn't mean that we should keep giving people a platform. But we can say that Dr. Oz has has an expertise. Athletes who have accomplished incredible feats are able to write about their experiences from a place of expertise, you know, and on, and then on and on. And then but the same thing goes, you know, you don't need to be an Olympian to have the right to write about what it felt like to lose your wife far too young or a child you know again these things happen to many many people but the way that they happen to you and your ability to write about it in a in a touching manner that people can relate to um that is important too that's the artistry right hmm. so the next just to review again we talked about what goes into a standard book proposal. And there is a table of contents, an overview, a sample chapter, a marketing plan, a bio that includes your platform. Am I missing mm. anything? I think that's, I hit the big ones, Did right? Say table of contents. Yeah, table of contents. Okay. <laughs> so, but what I want to drill down into a little bit more for listeners is overview. Like mm. what, what <laughs> makes a good overview and like what are some do's and don'ts because i think like that's a pretty broad word yeah. you know like overview oh, yeah. but what what do we what, what is the goal like what are we trying to do to be successful with an overview okay so an an overview i think is the most dangerous part of the project and it should probably be called something else because the overviews i've started to see are like 40 pages long they cover absolutely everything that's going to be in the book that is not the point of an overview. You know, instead of saying overview, maybe we call it a bird's eye view of the book. And it is like the ones I've done are short. They're, you know, three pages. They're, they really go straight to the heart of the matter. What is the most important thing that people are coming to the book for? So if we just make up an example so that I don't cite examples of people who have become racist transphobic you know, who knows anymore i'll just make an example okay let's say that chloe is working on a proposal about her time in 1990s san francisco in the male dominated gaming industry right and she's a she's a woman she identifies as a woman what should we call it i'm not a gamer i'd love to call it ready player one but that's been used so that overview 
would position her experience in 1990 San Francisco in the male-dominated gaming industry center ring. That's the center ring, and most of the overview should be devoted to that content and that material and the takeaways that contemporary readers can take from that part of the story. The sideshows will be alluded to. So just the way you talk about going to a circus, there's the big tent, you know, oh, you're going to see, I don't know, the dancing elephants or you're coming for this main thing. And then there's sideshow stuff that should just be alluded to. Oh, and there's a man eating a rod of fire and there's a woman swallowing a knife and there's, we write whatever the hell. Um, but you don't get into the weeds about those things. So for example, Chloe. Chloe, if she was working in the gaming industry as a, as a 20 year old, well, what happened before then? How was she educated? How did she, how was she introduced to games as a young person? Did she have parents? Did she have two parents? Did they like to game? Did she have siblings? Was she bullied at school? What was her love life like? What was the first time she kissed someone? Did she know that she liked boys? Was it possible she liked it? Was she asexual? You know, all these things. And then life after the, the you know, her first jobs. Did she work in a deli? How did she end up in San Francisco? All of that shit. <laughs> That's the book. And you need the whole runway of the book form to lay that stuff out. It does not need to be in the overview, right? Okay, so, so wait, I'm gonna stop yeah. you. All the stuff that you just talked about, because I was very interested. I was like, yeah, what, 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 what's up with Chloe and okay. her life and her childhood? But then, we'll read the book. <laughs> just to, yeah, just to underline this, that this does not go in the overview in your book proposal. No, you, you reference it. So let's use a similar example. It's fiction, but Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gab Gabrielle Zevin or Gabriel. Sorry, I don't know which one she uses. That book is fiction about the gaming industry. And I was just looking the other day at what I call the violin line, which is where they uh, sum up the book's themes with, a, you can imagine, a swelling chorus, right? The violin line. And it did this sweeping thing where it said something like, covering 30 years from Cambridge, Massachusetts, all the way to San Jose, California, and covered, and it does, in one sentence, it covers 30 years of content, right? So in your overview, you want to do something similar. So you would do, you know, from chapters called um, Donkey Kong had a big dong <laughs> that looks at <laughs> Chloe's, you know, uh, initial, I have no idea, the discovery that she might be into women all the way to don't rain on my parade, you asshole, that looks at how she became a popular TED talker, you know, fighting back against misogyny in, in the gaming industry. Um, whatever the book title is, is a powerful over right you're, you're doing the generalization this broad sweeps your overview is coming up against chapter summaries the chapter summaries are going to show us oh okay look at this we're opening in the 90s when chloe is derogatory language is used or a man takes credit for her gaming work but then look at this chapter two we're in her childhood Chapter three, we're in the, whatever the hell it is, the chapter summaries allow you to flex everything that's going to be in the book. The overview is for the bird's eye view. The, the overview is much closer right. to the back 
cover of a book or sometimes it's in the inside cover the the flap copy the two paragraphs generally it's just two paragraphs that describe the book it's the most selling copy why should you buy this what is if you liked these books you'll like this book you know if you love this you'll love blah, 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 blah. it's your overview is closer to that two paragraph summary than it is to a synopsis, right? I think people get very confused about overviews and start to write them like a synopsis. Now, a synopsis is something totally different. Mm -hmm. It's more of a Hollywood screenwriting thing where you do the play-by-play, -play, much more in the weeds, play-by-play -play for the whole, or the, all the content of the project. That is not an overview. Nobody has time. How, how long? How long does an overview t typically? Like give a ballpark. So I'm a single space. I think in single spaces. So three pages. Sing I guess that would actually be five pages. I don't think that they should. I don't think they should go above 12 pages. I mean, I, I just don't. I, I, let me put it this way. I've read a lot of proposals because I help. I work with people under proposals. I have a class online about writing proposals. I have never read a proposal where the overview needed to be longer than three single-spaced pages. So this brings me to the next kind of uh, thing that I want to talk to, uh, with you about. And it has to do with the readability of the document. It's one thing to have all the information that you need or to have a clear sense of things, mm -hmm. but you're presenting this to somebody who you're asking to spend money on your project. And it's like you say earlier, this is like, right. you got to put on your big boy pants or your big girl pants and like, just understand that you're in, you're initiating a, a hopefully right. a business right. transaction here. You're not finger, finger painting <laughs> yes. or whatever. So <laughs> the readability of the document is paramount. Yeah. It has to be a good read. And the first point has to do with concision. Uh, like you advocate for concision. I think you were just kind of alluding to it here. And I, I guess the, the thing that comes to mind for me is that if it's a nonfiction book. Exactly. And you can't say what it is in three single space pages or less, then maybe you don't have a book, right? Exactly. You probably don't. Or, 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 let's put it this way. If you cannot write a very tight, concise overview, you're probably the type of person who needs to write the entire book themselves and then whittle it down. The, otherwise you're putting the cart before the horse. So it's not just about concision, it's about digestibility. So like anyone in the literary and publishing world, I'm sure people come to you and they're like, oh, Brad, I've got this idea for a book. I've got a pitch. Like, could you weigh in, right? I'd, I'd love to not pay you for your labor because <laughs> you're a writer and apparently writers do everything for free. <laughs> you know, let's say you're like, sure, Joshua, ah, go, go nuts, send me the thing. What's better, right? Would you prefer to receive from our friend Joshua a 100 page document where he forgot to put page numbers and you can't, there's no table of contents and you can't make head or tail of the thing or a concise four page pitch deck, which is effect effectively a PowerPoint where you can identify right away what the pitch is, what the concept is, why he needs to write it. You know, as, as a person short on time, who's not being paid to read the thing, I would imagine that you would prefer the concise, pitch deck version. So 
here's an example from my life. The other day I was working with someone who had had kind of, you know, what the cottage industry of like <laughs> developmental editors, right? You pay thousands and thousands of dollars to someone and you still just get form rejections when you're looking for an agent. So it was this type of thing. Someone had come to me. They couldn't understand what was wrong with their proposal. So I started out by saying, well, first of all, it's 90 pages long. You know, it's unreadable. And they said, oh, well, but I'm, I don't have a lot of publications. So I thought I should prove, you know, put as much of my writing as possible in this document. And they said, if you don't have any publications, put less writing, not more. <laughs> right? Put less, not more. You know, less is more, I think, when it comes to proposals. So if we, another example, think about the difference when you go to a diner, a good old fashioned diner. And you look at the menu and the menu's 60 pages long, right? It's, it's, they have everything. They have absolutely everything. They've got photos of everything. You can have Mexican, you can have Chinese, you can have sushi, you can have eggs, you, what corned beef hash, right? Now, now you go to a fine dining restaurant, right? a good experience. There's probably, maybe there's three, three appetizers, three entrees, three desserts, a very short list of wines, right? It's whittled down. To me, that is not only a sign of quality, because someone is, is, has taken the time to whittle all the other crap out. It's also a respect, a mark of respect of your time. You do not want to verbally vomit all over the agent or editor reading your proposal. You need to show them respect, make your document easy to navigate, and only give them what they need to know. Again, a proposal, and I'm remiss that I didn't explain this at the outset, it's an invitation for collaboration. It's not, I'm gonna do this and I'm only doing it this way. It's not like a blueprint. You know, the, a blueprint for a house is not a vibe, <laughs> right? It's, you need to build it the way it is on the blueprint. This is not an architectural blueprint. It's sort of a gesture. It's an invitation to dance, right? And then there'll be collaboration. There might even be some improv. Um, so again, you don't want to have too short of a proposal, but you don't want to put too much because then it looks like, oh my God, there is no room for me to come in and um massage this or tweak it at all this person has this clear idea of everything they want in it and there's there's no, no room for partnership so i do believe less is more but that means you have to have a super dynamic clear sense of what you're coming to the proposal page for yeah and i think what you're talking about and it's an important thing to underline not just as a person writing a proposal but as a person hopefully eventually writing a book is that part of the skill, and this, I'm talking to myself here, it's been like a long education for me that continues, is that you have to get good. Part of the skill is being good at imagining whoever is reading your work, yeah. be it a proposal or a book, and, and, and really being able to kind of empathize with their experience. You know, think of the person in their office, busy, right. having a million things to read. You have to make it, like, like you say, easy to follow, but hopefully also enjoyable and exciting and interesting. You got to draw them in, you know, you got to entertain them, yeah. even if you're making a proposal. So, and it is know, possible. It is. I've seen it done. It is possible. You've seen like really good ones. I have seen great ones. 
I think I write a pretty good proposal myself. <laughs> but right. but you I know what, you Brad? Like I come from over twenty years working with working with advertising agencies. Okay, I have been in pitch rooms with incredibly power. You know, forget publishing. I'm talking like the head of Procter and Gamble. I uh-huh. have been present when a colleague of mine, thankfully it wasn't me, came into the room with a forty-page PowerPoint. We I, I work as a corporate namer. We were naming a product. And she came prepared with this 40-page thing. Everyone would be like, what the hell is this dinosaur thing? And um, the person, not a not a nice person, not a nice guy, but whatever. His time was worth a certain amount. And she get by the time she's on slide three, he's like, I don't want all of this shit. I don't have time. Just give me the takeaway. And she wasn't prepped for it because it was so much blah, blah, blah. You know, so... Time is money in proposal lands. And if you need 90 pages to work out all the spaghetti you're trying to throw against the wall, (laughs) just write the book. Don't write a proposal because it can take a long time to write a proposal and you could still meet rejection. You might as well write the damn thing, revise it, you know there's paths forward. Like at least you could self-publish it. You can't self-publish a proposal. Right. Okay. So, and just like, just to interject uh, before we move on to the next thing, a technical question, I think as people are listening and as I'm listening, if they I'm haven't given what, up from yeah, sadness. They, <laughs> hey, listen, these are, these are hard truths, but yeah. they're truths nonetheless. It's good to face them. And I think a question that I have as I'm listening to you is just a format question. You've mentioned PowerPoint yeah decks and like, yeah. you know, pitch decks and stuff. And this is, you know, this is, I think, something that most adult humans are familiar with by now who have worked professionally in any capacity. <laughs> yeah. Is a pitch deck a format that book proposals happen in? Or is this more of like our, our book proposal? I'm imagining yeah, them yeah, as yeah. Microsoft Word documents, but is there any, like, is there any flexibility in terms of yeah, what format you can question. use? That's a great question. That's a great question. So um, I think most often in publishing land, people are sending Word documents or Word documents saved as PDFs. But that's a bit behind the times because in Hollywood, so my husband's a filmmaker, so we've been doing pitch decks um, for content proposals forever. And you would never, ever send a Word document. You want visuals, right? You want to create the world. So I actually would encourage people, if you know what you're doing, it needs to look good. And it needs, again, it can't weigh a gazillion gigabytes and break down penguin random houses, you know, be, be smart about right. it. But, um, I, I love a good pitch deck where, you know, boom, you have visuals and the overview, instead of even being three pages, it's a paragraph. Also, if you're smart with graphic design, you can make it seem like the book already exists. I don't mean by designing your own cover, please don't do that. But I mean, putting it in, putting the, the book, in the companionship of other books like it, you know, visually, instead of just announcing in your comp title analysis. So yeah, I think that that's a path forward. And if, instead of only asking writers in your circle, oh, would you let me see your proposal? Start asking people who work in marketing, like, oh, could I see that pitch you did for Colgate? Could I see the pitch deck you did for the Disney animation you were working on? Of course, they're probably under NDAs, but whatever. Hopefully you have a good <laughs> friend who lets you see this shit and and start incorporating incorporating that. And we're very behind the times in publishing. I mean, I, I remember when I was writing before and after the book deal, 
I was interviewing a movie producer about writing, you know, screenplays and how you should be sending your documents and stuff. And she's like, well, for God's sake, please don't send a word document. Cause what I'm supposed to be like, Hey Barry, Oh, I just got a word document. You know, <laughs> who's, who's going to get me excited about that. So um, relying on visuals is a nice way, I think, to elevate your, your proposal, but you, you won't have a lot of examples to draw from. Um, especially in the literary land. If you want to see examples of that, you'll start knocking on the doors of people who are publishing in self-help, fitness, leadership, you know, things like that. Because if they're coming from a background where they were already speaking the PowerPoint language, they'll be more likely to use it. Now we're coming from like, you know, workshop land and MFAs and shit, shit like that, where no one prepares us for real life. And so we think Word documents are exciting. They're not. Right. Well, no, but I'm, again, I'm thinking of the person in their office in Midtown Manhattan who is receiving this proposal and what would they prefer to look at? Right. A Word document or a very artfully crafted pitch deck? And if we're including a sample chapter or three, having that sample chapter or three formatted yeah. to look like a book, which you can do pretty easily nowadays, totally. like that seems like a no brainer. Why would you just send like double spaced? Right. You know, uh, <laughs> Times New Roman, like make that shit look like a book, right? They, yeah, like, exactly. I'm sure yeah. that someone out there is going to make a lot of money by helping people understand how to format good looking proposals and, you know, good for you. It's not going to be me. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the next thing I want to talk to you about is the chapter summary. Like you advocate for yeah. what, like, yeah. I guess you call it a two-step approach. Like, can you explain that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this was something that came to me by having to wade through client proposals and just totally lose the thread and think, oh my God, I can't, I want to help this person. They're so talented. I'm, I'm absolutely lost. So this is my approach to chapter summary writing. You start with what I call an abbreviated chapter summary approach. So what that looks like is chapter one, the title of the chapter, and then one to two sentences max about what that chapter is. So for example, drawing from a proposal of mine for my publishing guide before and after the book deal, I had a chapter, I don't know, it was maybe chapter seven, title, making time to write, parentheses, and then actually writing. How do we establish our writing time and develop the habits to make sure we actually write during that time? One sentence. Then, after you do the one to two sentence abbreviated chapter summaries, you can follow either after the sample chapter or right before it with expanded chapter summaries. So this is when you would do one to two full paragraphs about the content of each chapter. Now, this is, this is a way of increasing... The, this is a way of, uh, let's see, fostering a really positive editorial relationship with the person reading your proposal because it's going to allow them to see where they can be helpful and where they, to see the material take shape in a much more fluid manner. So if you give them, you know, if the whole book is boiled down to two pages with the one census chapter, chapter flow, you can track 
time really easily. Okay. Oh, we're good. Forward in time, backward in time, speculative, back in time, forward in time, you know, whatever it is, if it's self-help, we can see, are we moving really fluidly and powerfully toward the takeaway or is the timing and structure a mess? You can't use that tool in that manner if every chapter summary is three or four pages long and you get totally lost. You can't scan. It's not easy mm -hmm. to use. So that's a little personal flair I like to add into <laughs> proposals again to make it really easy for shareability. You know, ultimately you want the editor, by the way, in case people don't know this yet, getting an editor to love your project is not enough. They have to be able to sell, convince an entire boardroom, including, you know, like the money people to buy your book, them loving it and loving you and believing in you hundred percent. It's not enough. So it's so much, again, imagine the people on the other side, if I take two pages and I run to you in your cubicle, I'm like, Brad, look at this really quick. Oh my God, look how smart, like it's structured in such a clever way. You only have to look at two pages to see how it flows versus, oh, I know you're super busy and you have a call in five minutes. Here's, here's 50 pages, just scan it and you'll see how it's impossible. <laughs> so yeah, again, once again, thinking of the, and yeah. being kind to the person on the receiving end, making their life easy, making their job easier. And just so people are 100% clear, what you are advocating here with this two-step approach, let's say that there are 15 chapters in your book, you would do the thumbnail summaries of each chapter, yep. the one or two sentences, name of the chapter, one or two sentences, and that is its own section, yep. one through 15, chapter one through chapter 15. And then either after or before the sample chapters, yep. you do the one or two paragraph expanded summaries of chapters. That would be my suggestion, yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, the next thing I want to talk to you about is comp titles, mm. <laughs> because this is not always something that is easy to discern, especially if you're like me and it's like more arty. It's like, oh God, mm -hmm. what is a comp title? So can we talk a little bit about choosing good comp titles that actually serve you instead of like reaching for the sky and like choosing comp titles that are sort of absurd and maybe will cause the person on the receiving end to roll their eyes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one mistake that people make is looking for carbon copies of their own projects. So for example, sticking with our woman, uh, the, the shark who ate her arm, Right. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> which I, my, my daughter made me watch the movie. Is it Silver Surfer? Maybe the Soul Surfer. I think that's the name. Um, yeah. Okay. So a mistake would be only looking at amputee content. Right. That would be a huge mistake. Even if you're sticking and sticking only within, you know, athletes whose careers have been impacted by having to have a limb amputated. That's too on the nose. And it's also severely limiting your audience. Are you saying that your, your book can only be appreciated by people who have, have lost, you know, or had a, a limb removed? That is going to really narrow the potential of book sales. So you want to break it down into much more expansive categories. Tone, right? Are you using humor? That's a good place to start. If you're using humor, what kind of humor are you using? Are you using like 
who me naive humor like david sedaris who's lived in paris for 30 years and still can't speak french <laughs> um are you using like hot bitch humor like mary carr <laughs> um what kind of humor are you are you using and then start surrounding yourself with those books um what about structure right that's another way to find compatriots um for instance takira madden's long live the tribe of fatherless girls that is a very interesting you know fantastic memoir that moves around wildly in time but ends up creating an almost epic super expansive feel sarah rules 100 essays i don't have time to write is is a very interesting structural approach where i mean it is what it sounds like it's a hundred very very short essays that she doesn't have time to write they're not even finished she's like sort of drafts of things she plans to write then you have maggie nelson who works in more of a vignette um, type approach. You might look at people whose memoirs are written as letters, if that's what your nonfiction project does. And then maybe pivot to something like, what's your approach to research, right? If you have a nonfiction book that uses enter that uses research in a really entertaining way, well, then we'd be looking at Bill Bryson, Susan Orlean, using outside research to storytell and entertain and charm is an approach, whereas Patrick Radden Keefe's approach to research, you know, in the Empire of Pain, for example, his amazing book on, on the OxyContin dynasty, he's using research in a much more academic, persuasive almost legalistic manner. So think about your approach to research. And then of course, themes, themes and then topics, which are not really the same thing, right? If your theme is about like my memoir, the healing potential of animal and human relationships, then that gives you places to go. Whereas if the topic is grief, that gives you somewhere else to go. So you want to look you don't want to be comparing apples and apples, right? You don't want to be looking for a book that has the same plot as yours does, because if there's a book out there with your exact plot, it doesn't bode well for you selling your proposal. So you want to be looking for um, tonality, um, audience. You know, if you think you have something really niche, like I, I work all the time with women, especially who are just having a hell of a time getting anyone in the American medical industrial complex to just listen to them about their problems, right? Whether it's menopause, uh, traumatic birth, whatever the hell it is. And a lot of the gatekeepers will say, oh, we, we just don't have an audience for this. But, but they can point to the audience because they're subscribers to their newsletter or there's a podcast, you know, um, think about audience. And by the way, not all of your comps need to be books. You can have a comp in there that's a podcast. So that if you are writing about birth trauma and you just can't find a comp that's a book, pivot to a podcast. You know, um, you can also, and you'll hear different advice about this. I've heard people say like, it has to be books to books to books. That strikes me as an incredibly short-sighted approach in a world where 
everyone from the writer to the agent to the film scout to the editor, everyone's hoping that our books will be optioned, that our content will be optioned. So why the hell <laughs> wouldn't you include a film or TV comp or uh, a video game or a podcast, whatever the hell? I don't think you want to pivot to like, oh, my book, you know, if people love Taylor Swift's particular single, they'll love my book. That doesn't work so much. But you certainly could say, you know, my approach to nonfiction in this book will entertain listeners who adore if books could kill podcast, right? So you can, mm -hmm. if let's say you have, you have eight books or you know, six to eight books, you could certainly throw in two out of industry examples. I don't, I think that's great. And that'll wake the reader up a little bit. <laughs> Something you said too, I think, is that you don't have to, when you're picking comp titles, is that you don't have to pick everything that's ever been published in oh, your particular lane. <laughs> yeah. It's not about like everything in my lane I need to compare my book to, but it's choosing the most effective titles for what you're trying to prove. Yeah, exactly. And so that, that means like if we're using your book as an example, the healing power of relationships between uh, people and animals, that doesn't mean like every comp title has to be about people and their relationship to an animal. It could be about people who have achieved healing through some other way, right? Is that what you Def mean? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Uh, through, through some un un sorry, unorthodox manner, right? It could be a woman who found her voice again. I mean, not literal voice, but, you know, through taking opera lessons, even though she wasn't a very good singer, because there's a sort of amateur hour concept in my... Um, in my book also yeah so you shouldn't be too literal with your content okay okay and then sometimes i'm sure there are listeners out there who are thinking to themselves like okay but i heard a story right. from a friend of mine who i went to graduate school with who sold her proposal to an editor over lunch just yeah. by mentioning it she went to Iowa, the writer's workshop, and just like gave yeah. her like a, an elevator pitch and wound up with like a $100,000 advance mm -hmm. and blah, blah, blah. You hear these stories. Mm -hmm. So there are exceptions to the rule is the question, right? There are definitely like, exceptions to the rule. And if you've already proven that you could do something, again, if this isn't your first book, you're more likely to not have to go through the whole gauntlet of crafting a perfect proposal. I'm not saying you're going to be sloppy about it, but maybe you don't even need a sample chapter, you know, cause you've already published with this editor and, and they've seen what you're capable of. So you can do it in a much more concise manner, maybe, maybe even like 10 pages, you know, just to give the general sense and flavor of what it is you plan to do. I mean, I had kind of an outlier experience with my memoir actually, where like you, I decided I needed to write it, especially because it's a memoir and I'm very sensitive to, you know, I don't love writing about the people in my life and they don't love it either, you know? So <laughs> a proposal didn't feel like the right way for me. I wanted to write the book and make sure like, I'm going to go to bat for this. It's worth possibly severing relationships. So I wrote a draft. Well, I wrote a couple drafts, but when I finally had a draft that I thought I could show this to my editor, my editor at Tin House, my agent was like, this is not a good draft. <laughs> and I said, I know, but it's an overture. And Maisie and I know each other. We'd already worked on uh, Maisie Cocker and my editor at Tin House. 
we'd already worked on a novel together and had had a very intimate editorial relationship, which is, by the way, one of the pluses of working with the smaller presses is that editors still edit, <laughs> which is the fact that editors at the bigger houses are not getting to edit as much is is really a travesty and it's not something that editors want, you know. But anyway, back to Maisie. She read the draft and she was like, okay, let's have a phone call. And she didn't really need to say it. We both knew that this was maybe not a great draft. But in the space of one hour, we had a conversation about the book. I had been very cagey about my childhood. I didn't write at all about my childhood in that first draft, whereas the published book, it's probably 70% my childhood. And Mm. that conversation with her unlocked everything for me. And I sat down after that phone call and I storyboarded the whole book, it's almost identical to how it ended up being published. And I wait, storyboarded wait, wait. So it. Yeah, what does that couple mean? things. <laughs> First of all, what's the name of this book? So people oh, can read about your childhood. <laughs> the Year of the Horses. Oh, okay. So this yeah. is The Year of the Horses. Yeah, and the then the when you say storyboard, mm-hmm. you mean like in the cinematic sense? I mean in the cinematic sense. I made boxes that would represent scenes, boxes that followed boxes that followed boxes, right? Which is not the proposal approach I'm talking about today. It's not a proposal approach that most editors are prepared to see or appreciate. It was something I did for myself. And because I have an intimate relationship with my editor, I was able to say, like, I think I called her. I'm like, okay, I'm going to send you this thing. If it makes it, we can walk through it together. But it was mostly based around visuals. So Maisie had encouraged me to really think about certain objects from my childhood that would um, inform each chapter. So, for instance, in the chapter, the rocking horse or the nightmare or whatever it was, informed the way that one experienced that storyboard. And ultimately, that, that's what we built the book off of. That's what we built the, you know, the book advance came thanks to that storyboard. So that was, it was a book proposal. I did propose the book that I knew I was capable of writing. And that, by the way, she knew I was capable of revising. Because again, mm-hmm. what I ha- what she saw was not good. And if we hadn't already, I mean, it was fine, right? But it was not great. And if we hadn't already worked together, I, I would not have gotten the Tin House book deal. But she knew what I was capable of. She knew my the way my brain works. And so, yeah, that that was a, a little bit of an oddball example, but. Yeah, but there are like there are exceptions. You have a pre pre existing relationship with an editor who understands you personally yeah. and creatively, or you're a newbie but you have a great story to tell and you have some sort of academic credential, whatever it is. Somebody takes a chance on you. It, it can yeah, happen, it but can it's, the happen. Exce- yeah. it's the exception. Yeah, it does happen. And again, it's easier for that to happen if you have a readable proposal. <laughs> and then platform. Mm. <laughs> which is a word that gets bandied about. Oh. It's been bandied about for like the last 20 years yeah. or 15 years, you know, and I think writers sometimes bristle uh, because it's As like, I have, should, to, yeah. I have to write a book and I have to yeah. be a marketing expert and I have to have a platform. It's like all these ands, you know, that you have to, take on as a writer in addition to the like the Herculean task of writing the thing. Yeah. So let's just define it for people who might not fully understand what a platform is. Well, it's a hellscape that will <laughs> ruin your will to live. Honestly, I'm sorry. That's what it is. It's um, platform. It could be argued is the publisher and even the agent to a certain extent saying you do all the work. 
proves to us that you can do all the work unpaid. <laughs> it's, it's you showing your, the ease with which you can reach, you can get the book to target readers. Okay, that's, that's what it is. How easy will it be for this person to turn their friends and followers into book purchasers? What's, what's, what's their ability to move units of their own book? That's, that's what platform is. So if you have, for example, a really robust social media following, let's say you've got, I don't know, 40,000 followers on Twitter. Well, Twitter's also like a dying landscape, but let's just talk about old Twitter. You got 40,000 followers. Again, publishing can be short-sighted and naive. They're going to think that's a whole lot of followers. Wow, if only half those people buy the book, we'll have very healthy sales. We'll have very healthy pre-sales. The truth of the matter is it doesn't work like that. You Sometimes it's the people with 1,200 followers who are really there for them as a person and who, who everyone exists. The follower exists and the content creator exists and it's not just bots, right? Sometimes that's where you'll see the real sales is, is when true people are rooting for other true people. So I don't think that these numbers pan out as much as the gatekeepers would like us to think they do. I actually think most people would be much better served by really celebrating and indulging their efforts in the places where they like to be. So what does that look like? So I mean, I'll give you an example. I have a friend who is a cookbook author, a very successful cookbook author. Some best-selling cookbooks. And this person, let's call him Warby, because I'm looking at my Warby Parker glasses. Warby is only on Facebook. Warby is an older person, not hip to TikTok, you know, all these things, and is not gonna go there anytime soon. You know, he's like, I like cookbooks, I write a good cookbook, I'm not going on TikTok. But he told his editor, but the thing is, I'm a huge influencer in the knitting community. And they were like, what? What the hell do we care about your knitting community? This is cook. And he's like, no, no, no. These people will do anything for me. There's thousands and thousands of them and they will do anything for me. They live and die by my, whatever it is, knitting models or knitting modules or my ability to help them out of a knot, right? Literally. <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay, Warby. Oh, I don't know about that. And this Warby, his army of knitters placed so many pre-orders that his book was like an instant New York Times bestseller. And it turns out that people who like to knit often quite like to cook. And so that there was much more overlap between these two audiences than the gatekeepers would have thought at the outset. And this is, this is really, like, I used to work in trend forecasting and this is an area where publishing like the pits, they are so bad at trend forecasting if they even do take the time to get access to like real numbers, it, it, then they only trust the numbers instead of using intuition and just common sense, you know, and realizing that a person who, you know, I don't know if you're saying like, oh, we have too many sobriety memoirs. We have too many recovery. Me okay, fine. But if this person is coming with an audience of, I don't know, Christians and their Christian community, they don't give a shit that there's already too many of this certain type of memoir. And they're going to buy it because of this person, because of a true human relationship. So 
So the way I counsel people to think about platform is to break it down into, I think it's like three or four, four parts. Start with the worst, which is virtual reach. So just get a big, big piece of paper, make a four quadrants section. And up at the top left, we do virtual reach. So you're going to write down where you are, not where you're not, where you are. Okay, I'm on Twitter. I've got this many followers. I'm on TikTok. I've got this many followers. I have a newsletter. I have this many subscribers. I'm on Pinterest. I have the, whatever, all the places, even the ones that, that feel totally irrelevant to what you're doing. Just get your numbers down because you can, if you're savvy and a little manipulative, total them. And just say I have a combined audience of 20,000 even though most of them are on your kickboxing member. I don't know what the hell, right? That's the virtual. Then you move to the right quadrant and you do physical reach. So here you want to think about your actual physical reach, your ability to, you know, truly like reach out and touch someone. Um, are you a teacher? Are you a doctor or a nurse? Are you physically entering spaces like a law classroom or a corporate office? You're going on corporate retreats. What are the physical spaces that you have access to because of your job or community service or you know whatever the hell it is? And by the way, if you you are just raising a child at the moment, well, think about okay, I have access to the people through my daycare. I have access to the people through my breastfeeding community. Really go out there and again, even if you think, oh God, this has nothing to do with my project, do it anyway. Then the bottom left, you're going to do personal network. This is who the hell do I know who's kind of famous, connected, who will help me? Oh, my brother-in-law is such a dick, but he works with Jimmy Fallon, you know, whatever it is. You want to trace out the people that could possibly help you. Obviously, do you know any famous writers or super famous podcast hosts, you know, that you could reach out to for a testimony? Super famous. Or blurb or whatever <laughs> it is, right? And then on the right side, bottom right, literary citizenship. So I see this problem a lot where people who aren't big readers decide that just because they wrote a book, it's their right to get a book deal. It does not work that way. We are a meritocracy in publishing. Like you got to put in the time, the sweat, drink the terrible beers, go to AWP. We don't let you in, right? Until you do all this shit. So you literary citizenship. Do you have any publications? What are these publications? Where have you been publishing? Um, do you run a reading series? Do you religiously attend reading series? Have you volunteered for literary festivals, conferences? You know, in what way are you an active literary citizen? And then when you sketch all this stuff out, you should be able to see just visually where you have a lack and where you have strength. And so then going forward, what you need to do is obviously up the, the place where you, you have a weakness. Um, and I'm teaching a university class right now on query writing and I'm teaching everyone the aspirational pivot. So the aspirational pivot, what that would look like is, let's say you have no publications at all. That would look like you know, in 2023, I've made a goal to publish five pieces of flash nonfiction. In 2023, I've made a goal to launch my newsletter with the goal of getting 2000 subscribers in the first year. Now you've done none of this. Hopefully you're preparing. So it's not an outright lie. 
but tell them what you're planning to do. You know, I have been caretaking for my elderly mother for the last three years. I really haven't been able to participate in the writing community, you know, as much as I'd like, but I just signed on to do three shifts a week. This you don't want to lie about, right? I, to Three shifts a week at my local bookstore, or I'm, I'm reading books to children uh, at the library. I'm working with prisoners on their own memoir, right? Just get out there and get involved. You really do need to to be, we're, we're a club. I'm sorry. It's a clubby little place and you're going to need to do the clubby little things. Um, so that's, that's a way to break down platform, the four quadrant approach. Okay. And then bio, like mm. you have to tell people that why are bio such a pain? I mean, all of this is kind of a pain to write, but like, yeah, I have such a hard time sometimes like putting together a good, like, what do people want to know about me? You can tell them what you've written if right. you publish some books, but then what are some best practices in terms of kind of fleshing out a bio and, and making the best possible case for yourself? <laughs> so in, in, if we're talking about proposals, obviously your bio should support the thing that you're hoping will sell, right? So if you're writing a proposal on uh, forget running, only be a fast walker, your bio should have something about how passionate you are about fast walking, Right. Um, so that your proposal is not coming out of nowhere. And then something else that's important, um, if you are not coming from the literary, you know, clubby background and you don't have the publications and you don't have an MFA, I don't have an MFA, it doesn't really matter actually because what's the most important, especially if you're going to work with, you're aiming for large commercial presses, it's more important actually that you know how to meet deadlines that you know how to write under fire, that you know how to collaborate, that you know how to use email subject lines, <laughs> you know that you know how to use CC correctly, you know that you are a professional person. It, it, ultimately, those people end up making better colleagues than the genius who lives in the woods and only accepts certified mail, right? These people, for better or for worse, it's a thing of the past, right? You, you, let's say that you you come from a business leadership side of things, but you speak in public all the time. Okay, so you haven't published in the Paris Review, but you regularly speak in front of five hundred people. That's that's more important than having published in the Paris Review because what that means is you can be sent out on the speaking circuit. Maybe you can even bring in quite a bit of money for the literary agency by being sent out on the speaking circuit. So embrace the kind of corporate side of yourself that's used to deadlines, working with colleagues. You know, we're encouraged a little bit too much in America to think of writing as this isolated thing. It's only isolated while you're writing a damn book. The minute you're trying to sell and promote it, you are in corporate America. And it does not matter if you're with the little guys or the big presses, you have higher ups, you have colleagues, you got time sheets, you've got the chore wheel. <laughs> so you want to prove in your bio by alluding things to things like, oh, you know, though I don't have an MFA, I've worked at Amazon Prime as a head project manager for the last five years. God help you. And I'm absolutely no stranger to tight deadlines and managing content creation, cal editorial calendars, la, la, la. Right. Okay. So last question has to do with a scenario that I think might cause listeners to feel a sense of dread. <laughs> uh, like what if you propose a book 
and are fortunate enough to sell it. And then you go off to write it. And along the way, it diverges from what you initially Mm. proposed, which I think is a very plausible scenario for anybody who's ever written a book. Like you have an idea of it at the beginning and typically what you wind up with when you get to your final draft is quite different. Like this is not abnormal, right? No. And it's also not abnormal that because of things that happen while you're writing it, that you might be forced to change it. Right. Like, I don't know. You could be writing about hunting and there's so many mass shootings that all of a sudden they're like, actually, can you turn this into a cookbook about cooking with venison? Right. So all types of, and again, that these are the risks that you run when you'd go the book proposal route, because it is you're projecting content into a future that you're not writing from yet, right? So you don't know what kind of environment your material will be released into. So if um, generally, I mean, it depends how you work. Some people have quite an intimate relationship with their agent and their editor, and maybe they're checking in, you know, weekly or once every once every two weeks or something, how's the material going? Oh, I mean, it turns out like I'm putting much more of X in this than I thought. If, if, if you're keeping your team abreast of the development of the project, then they'd already see this coming. It, it becomes problematic if you disappear for a year, they ask to see your pages and you've written on a completely different subject. So that is something your agent will have to mitigate for you. And it could look like lots of different things. Maybe the editor's excited about this pivot. Maybe they are not going to allow it. And you either have to go back uh, to the drawing board that everyone originally signed off on or give them back their money, right? It can look like a lot of different things, but you should understand that when someone purchases a book proposal from you they are per- they are <laughs> purchasing an attempt to create what you put out on that proposal so let's say that again i'm lucky enough to like hire a gardener and i say i want this that and the other thing and i come home and my entire yard is just palm trees you know that's that's just not going to work i live in new england <laughs> and i wouldn't want to pay for that you know right right because it so, was not what I ordered. I wanted a prairie, a field of prairies, Brad. So, but but from a practical perspective, if you start to diverge in the work, the course of action to take if you want to keep things moving if forward. If you want to keep your money, I would alert your agent. Okay, because I was going to say, I think like sometimes I feel like you can just email your editor if you have a relationship like that. What you're recommending though is more often well, it than depends not. You... On the, it depends on the relationship. I mean, generally <laughs> my agent, even though I have very close relationships with all of my editors, she is, I have to go through her first. If I'm gonna send an email like that, she needs to know about it first. Most okay. agents I think would highly appreciate if you let them know that you know you were going to paint the barn red, but decided teal was the way to, they need to know first. I, that's again a lot of this depends on your relationships and whether or not you're in good standing with your agent. But in the uh, etiquette wise, you should let your agent know, and then maybe they'll say, "Oh, this is fine. Call her. Call Sally. Let her know." Or maybe they'll be like, "Oh my God, this is a fire that I am going to have to put out. You've started it." <laughs> But yeah, I would, I, etiquette wise, agent, let that agent know. Okay. 
Okay. Well, this has been hugely helpful, uh, not only to me, but I'm imagining people listening <laughs> have gotten a ton out of this. I really appreciate it. And before I let you go, where can, like, t- give people kind of your bio and, like, w- ah. where they can find you, <laughs> the work My that bio. you do if they want to learn more about this. I think there's more to talk about, but we've gotten us, yeah. you know, gotten people started. So just give people an idea of how to reach you and where they can get additional resources. Yeah, the the my my bio, I guess my whole thing partly because I don't have an MFA and I'm, you know, somewhat self-taught but have worked in advertising and marketing for most of my professional life is that like I'm half art witch and I'm all about the art and then the other half of me sadly understands the marketing aspect. So if you like that kind of approach, you know, you want someone to hold your heart and your dreams in both arms, but then also be able to speak to you in a really pragmatic manner. I am the lady for you. My uh, website is CourtneyMom.com and there's a classes tab there where I've created four different classes to help you uh, survive this freaking industry. Everything from like writing query letters all the way to, I have a book proposal class. So all the stuff we're talking about today, if you go to the classes tab on CourtneyMom.com, there's a book proposal writing class. It's super affordable. I try to keep my online classes very, very affordable. If you are interested to spend more money, I work privately with people, um, but that is not the same price point. And oh, and I write books. <laughs> I write quite a few books. I have five books and I write across multiple genres, which is not something I recommend if you want to make your life easy. But if you want to challenge yourself, and keep your soul alive. It's something nice to do. So, um, yeah, I, 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 if you like it, I got it. I've got rom-coms. I've got historical novels. My publishing guide is very helpful before and after the book deal. And then my memoir, The Year of the Horses, quite fond of that. So yeah, little, little, quite a bit. Okay. (laughs) So for people listening, just for the purposes of like a craft work episode where we're talking about the nuts and bolts of craft and also the business of publishing. You just mentioned that you wrote a book called Before and After the Book Deal. Yeah. So you have an entire book out on the, like the business of the business side of publishing and like if for a person who really wants to learn about that that book. It's the let's see the subtitle is A Writer's Guide to Finishing, Selling, Promoting and Surviving Your First Book and Beyond. Well, we also talk a lot about the horrible reality of having to write a second book after your first. Um, And I interview over well over 200 publishing professionals from all walks of life for that book. So it's not like, this is how Courtney did it. Cause you know, I'm a white lady from Connecticut. The way I did it will be different than the way that other people did it. And that's why I really tried to talk to everyone from, you know, indie stars like Chelsea Hodson, all the way up to Roxanne Gay, Tony Dore, like, We've got success stories, we've got horror stories, we've got film scouts and voiceover actors and audible executives, like everyone weighs in. So I actually, I'm very proud to say it came out in 2020 and I still haven't seen a need to do an updated version because I I covered everything, (laughs) I covered a lot. It's pretty exhausted. Well, that's great. That's a great resource and, and people can go check that out. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time and for sharing all that you know with me and with my audience. I think it's going to help a oh, lot well, of people. I hope it, and I hope it helps you. And I wish you the best of luck, whether you write this as a proposal or as a book, you know, try to find some 
joy in it because <laughs> the writing's the best part, really. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you so much again, and best of luck to you on whatever projects you have going next. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Okay, everybody, there we go. That was my conversation with Courtney Mom, all about how to write a book proposal. You can find Courtney Mom on the internet at CourtneyMom.com. Her last name is spelled M-A-U-M, CourtneyMom.com. She has five books out, including the memoir, The Year of the Horses, out this week in trade paperback, critically acclaimed, makes for a great Valentine's Day gift, I'm just saying. You should also check out Courtney Mom's book entitled Before and After the Book Deal. It is an excellent resource if you're looking to learn about the business of writing and publishing. So go to CourtneyMom.com, learn all about her. She is a writing coach. She does manuscript consultations. She is the executive director of this nonprofit learning collaborative called The Cabins. She's a public speaker. She does a newsletter, an email newsletter, uh, that is full of publishing tips and information and insight. So sign up for her newsletter, and you can find a trove of online masterclasses at CourtneyMom.com, including a full masterclass on writing book proposals. So if you like what you heard in today's episode and you want to learn more, just go over to CourtneyMom.com, click on classes and events and check it out. All right. So what else? Oh, this podcast is offered freely. And if you like this show, I hope you will consider supporting it. You can do that for as little as $1 a month. I've tried to make it a no-brainer. $1 a month at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. It's a sliding scale, so $1, 3 5 10 20 whatever you can afford. As you move up the scale, you can get merchandise, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a book club subscription, a, a coffee mug, that sort of stuff, over at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. Support the show. Help me keep it going. Another great way to support the show, if you like the show, is to rate and review the show wherever you listen to the show. When you do that, it helps new listeners find the show. So rate it and review it if you would be so kind. If you would like to get other people merchandise, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, that sort of thing, just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com. Scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You'll see it. It's self-explanatory. The t-shirts are really comfortable. I'm just saying. They're good. I promise. So, great time talking with Courtney Mom. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you are enjoying these new Craftwork episodes. This is a new series from the Other People podcast that is focused on the craft of writing and the business of publishing. And I'm going to try to do at least two a month to start. Let me know what you think. Email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. Coming up later this week, I am going to be in conversation with a debut novelist named Chetna Maru. Her new book, it's a novel, it's called Western Lane, is just superb, and I'm very excited to talk with her. So stay tuned for that. All right? All right.